0: prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, (laughs) so thankful for his sacrifice that we could uh, be declared righteous in your sight, because he bore our sins as he hung on the tree. He canceled out the certificate of death that consisted of laws written against us for our disobedience. Thank you that uh, there's forgiveness in his name, and only in his name. Thank you for him, our great Savior. We look forward to his return, our blessed hope. Until that day, we want to live to your glory, and honor him for all that he's done for us. So part of the way that happens is for us to pay attention to what you tell us out of your book, the Scriptures that are profitable for us in every area of our lives. So help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit has for us today. Implant these words, as James wrote, into our our souls so they become part of us, ingrained in us, so that we live for your glory. We pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. So I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. We will not be going beyond that. We'll see if we can get through all of that this morning. But Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The long uh, history of human affairs, there have been many statements that have been so significant that they kind of get remembered forever. Well, I don't know about forever, but for a long, long time. And some of those that are most memorable to us are probably those that have been spoken or written by people from our own country's history. Such statements as, give me liberty or... Give me death. See, you remember that. Uh, or how about this one? December 7, 1941. A date that will live in infamy. That's right. Or ask not what you can do for your country, but what... You... Actually, it's, it's good by you. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. <laughs> Or how about this one? I have a dream. I have a dream. Or now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. Or this one. You deserve a break today. Okay, that last one's not so significant, but it is very memorable. Kind of like, where's the beef? Something like that. Well, in Christian history, one of the most memorable statements, at least in my thinking, was made by Martin Luther. Because of his fight for Reformation truth, and particularly the nature of the gospel itself, he was excommunicated from the Catholic Church by Pope Leo X. And then three months later was brought before what has been famously referred to as the Diet of Worms, of Worms, It was a trial before an assembly of princes and prelates overseen by the Holy Roman Emperor. And it was with the possibility of him being put to death for his teachings. He was urged to recant or to repent of his teachings and that if he did so, he could be forgiven. Instead, he responded with these words, My conscience is captive to the word of God. (laughs) Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. Powerful words, powerful words. Out of all the statements that will be remembered because of the impact that they've Made at some time in human history, perhaps there is none that have had a more resounding impact than what Paul has said in Romans chapter 8 when he wrote, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How treasured, how treasured are those words for those who have placed their faith in Christ. I assume that probably most of us, if not all of us. And it is those words which begin what has been referred to in this chapter, has been referred to as the brightest jewel in the treasure chest of the Word of God. Uh, our uh, author, Ray Stedman, has described this chapter as a, a great mountain rising up uh, above all the surrounding hills and and capturing all attention now i remember when i first read that many years ago it made me think of how easy that is for us to relate to as we observe the scenery that we experience daily here in anchorage the 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 mountains rising up the Chugach mountains right there and uh, or you can look across the inland sea susitna or you can look further across the inlet and see the Alaska Range. And if you look north, if you drive just a little bit north, you see the Talkeetnas and all those mountains rising up. So so very beautiful. And we might consider the view of those mountains kind of like the teachings that we've already gone over in the book of Romans. You know, It's teaching about the condemnation of sinners before God. All all people are condemned before God as sinners, and they need the righteousness of God to have a right relationship with God. That's what the gospel is. It's the power of God to save people from their sin. They are condemned. Well, how do we get that right relationship with God? He goes on to explain his justification. Justification, being declared right in the eyes of God by faith in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful mountain that is. Or we could talk about the redemption that he referred to in chapter 3. It's like God paying the purchase price for our salvation. The blood of his own son was the purchase price. Or how about propitiation, that God satisfied his own holy wrath against sin in his son. He put his own wrath on his son as he hung on the tree so that we might be declared righteous in the sight of God. Or reconciliation, we've talked about. God making it possible for us to be in a right relationship with him, not just at a moment, but for all the rest of our lives. To Be reconciled with him. Beautiful, beautiful mountain, beautiful hill. And and then we, we came to the doctrine of sanctification. What a beautiful mountain. That God has set us apart from the consequence of sin and set us apart unto himself as his own possession and for his own glory and purposes. What a beautiful doctor. What a lovely mountain to gaze upon. And then right at the end of this beautiful mountain, we see one rising up even higher. Kind of like looking at Mount Denali. Even from Anchorage, over 200 miles away, as you travel certain roads in town, you can see it. It rises up above all others, doesn't it? And and it is glorious to look at. And, and the closer that you get to it, and you realize, I'm still 100 miles away, and it looks like I'm right next to it. It just is a beautiful mountain. And so that is what Romans chapter 8 is like. It rises above all these other doctrines and it is striking to look at. It's a beautiful mountain for us to look at and see its magnificence. But to truly appreciate the beauty of this mountain of, uh, of a chapter, we do have to see it in its context. And I've already kind of mentioned it, but in chapter 6, I'll remind you that Paul showed that believers had died to sin's penalty and its power. They were dead in sin, but now they are alive in Christ. Why? Because they died to sin. It's penalty and it's power by virtue of their union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. We covered that in detail. And then in chapter 7, he taught that believers are dead to the law's penalty and power. The penalty of law was condemnation for breaking it. And the power of the law was to keep us in a state of guilt and shame because we fall short of the perfection that the law reveals about God and what God would have for us. But the law no longer has a rule over us. It cannot hold us in guilt and shame because we died to the law just like we died to sin. And we did that in Christ. And then at the end of chapter 7, um, Paul was seen describing the intense struggle of those who try to sin less and live more holy by keeping the law in their own self-determination, by you know pulling up their bootstraps and saying, I can do it, I can do it. And, and yet what they find over and over and over again, continually in that chapter, is failure. They fail. They do not keep it. They, they know it's right to do it. They know that they want to do it, but they just don't have the ability to do it. And so what it leads to is misery it leads to despair, and so much so that Paul describes it in verse 24 of chapter 7. as It's like, that's just being wretched. <laughs> what a great word to describe the legalist who tries to be right with God by keeping the law. Failure, despair, understanding that I fall short, I, I just live in guilt and shame. Oh, that's just wretchedness to the extreme. And that's where we left off last week. So it's at this point that we pick up with what Paul has to say in chapter 8. And, and what we'll see in this chapter is that the answer to how to sin less and live more holy is, is that uh, we can't do it in ourselves. And so we need to understand we're dead to sin, we're dead to the law, and we're alive in the Spirit. And that's chapter 8. And Paul is going to reveal that the Holy Spirit is the primary source. Not the only source, because we have more than the Holy Spirit. We have the scriptures, we have one another, we have prayer, we have meditation, and so on. But the Holy Spirit is the primary resource who will cause us to live like God wants us to live. Now, a very interesting fact about this chapter is that there, uh, and and it's telling us how to sin less and live more holy. That's been the focus of chapters 6, 7, and 8. This chapter that is telling us how to do that, there's not one single imperative in it. There's not a command written in chapter 8. Isn't that interesting? There's not one command that's telling us what to do. The focus is not on what we must do, but on what God has done. That's, that's very important for us to recognize. In the other chapters, we're, uh, 6 and 7, were filled with com- imperatives. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Be slaves of righteousness, etc., etc. Consider that you're dead to the law. Understand what the The true value of the law is filled with imperatives and commands, but we get to chapter 8 and there's not one. Griffin Thomas, an author, sums up well this uh, idea as he quotes two other authors. So I got it out of Griffin Thomas, but he's quoting two other authors. And he writes, as Godet says, the chapter begins with no condemnation. And ends with no separation. While in between, as C.A. Fox remarks, there is no defeat. Which is what we saw in chapter 7. Defeat after defeat after defeat. So no condemnation, no separation. And until we go before the Lord, there is no defeat. There is no defeat. Chapter 7 showed us a life of defeat and despair but chapter 8 reveals a life of holiness and and victory and security. So the life of people who are justified by faith in Jesus is described as one characterized by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And and that's the key word in chapter 8. I'll give you another factoid that is interesting. In chapters 1 through 7 of Romans the word Spirit is found only five times. In chapters 9 through 16, it is found only eight times. In chapter 8, the word Spirit is found 21 times, with all of them except two being a reference to the Holy Spirit. You see what the key The key is the sinning less and living more holy? It's the Holy Spirit. So after reading chapter 7... One might ask as to whether or not we must spend our whole life frustrated with the sin principle living in our bodies. Like, we know what's right to do, but we just don't do it. Oh, wretched man that I am. Isn't there a power, you know, would be the question, that can set us free from the inner struggle of dealing with the flesh, the sinful passions. And the answer to that question is found in chapter 8. It's not found in chapter It was mentioned briefly at the end of chapter 7, where Paul said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But he didn't explain anything there. He just says, yeah, there is an answer. And he's thinking, I'll deal with it in the next paragraph, (laughs) in chapter 8. Even though he wasn't writing in terms of chapters, it would flow right into that. So the Holy Spirit is seen as the source of divine power for... Living a sanctified life, living in victory over sin, living in holiness as God desires us to do. So, we're going to talk about give me liberty or give me death, or walking in liberty or walking in death. I think that kind of sums up verses one through four. And let me read those verses again, just so now that we understand the context. And how important these words are, let's read them with, you know, clear thinking. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from, uh, uh, set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened through the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the first part of verse 1 is, is hardly, in a sense, to be expected after what we saw at the, in the last half of chapter 7, all the despair and wretchedness, etc. But the words, therefore, now, that begin this verse, verse 1, infer something they infer uh, a conclusion to what must be connected to what preceded it right every time you see a therefore you stop and see what is therefore that's right it's a it's a word of inference so look back well how far should we look back what is he referring to you know previous well it could be just chapter 7 or 6 and 7 but my own thoughts is when paul says this there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus he's taken us all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way up to where he is now writing in chapter 8 because in chapter 118 through 320 he went into great detail explaining that we're all condemned and then in chapter 320 through 521 he talked about justification being declared right by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he's talking about sanctification, being set apart from the consequence of sin, and being set apart unto God as his possession and for his glory and use. So I, I think what he's doing is giving the logical conclusion of what he has been saying. And, and it should be understood as referring to the sweeping results of what he has written uh, all the way back from chapter 1. Hmm. The law. The law can no longer condemn us. That certainly is in his thoughts. The law, that was one of the purposes of the law. That was the true value of the law, is that it condemns sin. It, 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 it reveals it, it provokes it, and it condemns it, 7 seven through 13. But the law no longer condemns those who are in Christ Jesus through union with Christ and his death and resurrection, we are free from sin's dominion, its power, as well as its penalty. And and then, therefore, because the law doesn't condemn us, we don't have to live in guilt and shame. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. Far too many Christians actually are still living in guilt and shame because they don't understand the true value of the law, and they don't understand that the Holy Spirit is the... Not a secret, it's written, to be clear, it is the source for living a a holy life. And so it is likely that Paul has in mind all that's been written up to this point. And and notice the word now, therefore now. That's a temporal word, isn't it? Now in contrast to what was true before being brought into a right relationship with God through justification. Now, as opposed to being dead in sin and and dead under the law and guilty, etc., now it's all different. Now being alive in Christ as as opposed to being dead while walking around alive. Dead in sin, dead spiritually, dead eternally until we trust in Christ. Now, in verses 1-4, through Paul is going to, that was just the first couple words, right? we'll pick up our speed just a little bit, but uh, four things that he reveals in these four verses. And the first of those, if you're going in your insert, there's a blank there. Christians are not condemned. You probably already wrote that in, right? Christians are not condemned. That's verse one. So once we believed in Christ Jesus, everything changed. That is so fantastic. And I recall it so clearly when I truly believed in Christ, everything changed for me. And it, some of it was just immediate. Immediate. I mean, my language used to be so foul. I was, worked in construction with construction workers, which was kind of like sailors in almost any occupation today. Right? And, and the moment I trusted in Christ, and I didn't have to think about it, I need to change the way I talk. My talk changed. Not something I produced, it was something that God produced in me. That's just one example. So everything changes when we believe in Christ. But the biggest thing is that there's no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that word condemnation is a compound word, Katakrima. Kryma itself is a word that refers to judgment or Yeah, being judged. The kata at the beginning of it intensifies it. And so what he's really saying here, when he says no condemnation, there is no declaration or pronouncement of judgment, and there is no execution of judgment. It's both. No pronouncement nor execution of judgment. And this is a reference to the wrath of God, which he declared way back in chapter 1, will come upon all the ungodly and unrighteous who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, 118. So rejoice in this. God no longer declares that we who have believed in Jesus are condemned for our sin. God has declared something else to be true of us, that we're righteous in his eyes. Instead of declaring us as condemned, he declares us as right with him. Hmm. Hallelujah, for sure. And celebrate the fact that the execution of God's righteous judgment against sin and sinners is no longer hanging over our heads. You know? I I was thinking of some examples of you go to a a courtroom and there's, you know, a defense uh, with someone that's being represented and there's a prosecution and and the the trial goes all the way through and maybe you've seen this in real life or you've seen it on TV programs like Matlock or something else Uh, and uh, law and order or whatever. And it gets to the time when the jury is going to pronounce whether they're guilty or not guilty. And they represent the, you know, the clients saying, fearful, fearful. And then if it's not guilty, it's like, oh, oh, you know, freedom. and, And if it's guilty, of course, it's a different picture. But they live with fear until the pronouncement is made. We need not live in fear ever again if we are in Christ because the pronouncement and execution of condemnation has been removed from us. John writes us this way. Perfect love has cast out all fear. We don't fear the execution of God's judgment. Well, but I'm such a bad person. If you're thinking that way, that it's like, I just don't know what's going to happen when I stand before God and, you know, I I get judged for all my... Stop thinking that way! God has already judged your sin in His Son. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to have some bad feelings when we are judged as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and things are revealed about us, whether that is just to ourselves or you know in front of other people. But it, you know that is going to pass like in a heartbeat, and we're going to say, "Oh, I'm so glad I'm here. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my judgment." Yeah, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says now. This promise about not being condemned is true for a group of people, not everyone. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the phrase in Christ itself is found 55 times in the New Testament. And of those, it is used by Paul 54 times. What is that telling you? Paul really liked this term, in Christ. Because for him, it's summed up all that is meant by life for one who has been justified before God, one who is alive in Christ, one who has been reconciled to God, one who is united with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, one who has the promise of the hope of heaven. One, everything, every spiritual blessing, everything is wrapped up in the words in christ to him and it really is what he was talking about in chapter 6 which we covered but in verses 1 through 10 i'll remind you he says that we were dead in sin but now we're dead to sin because we are united with christ organically united with christ in his death burial and resurrection the the old self was crucified that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we wouldn't be enslaved to sin ever again. And consequently, everything changed for us. We stand forgiven before God, not condemned. The verdict has always been already been read, hasn't it? Not guilty. Not guilty. H. A. Ironside. Uh, up in heaven now with the Lord, but a commentator from some time ago has written a wonderful, wonderful statement on this glorious truth. What unspeakable relief it is to be to the bewildered, troubled soul, oppressed with the sense of his own failures to live up to his own highest resolves. By the way, that's chapter 7. When he learns that God sees him in Christ Jesus, and as Thus, seeing he is free from all condemnation, he may exclaim, but I feel so condemned. <laughs> this, is, however, is not the question. It's not how I feel, but it is what God says that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And John wrote that, too, in First John chapter 3. He says, and if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And sometimes we feel that way, but I'm telling all of us, we need to stop feeling condemned, because we are not and never will be condemned if we are in Christ. Now, that's different than feeling guilty about committing a sin, knowing that it's wrong and seeking for cleansing from it, but no condemnation. Hmm. Number two, Christians are pardoned. Pardoned. So as believers, we need to uh, let me stress it again, as believers, okay, I'm talking to believers here. We need to understand the significance of what of what Paul has written here. I, I think most of us, if not all of us, may thoroughly believe that the penalty for our sin was removed from us by faith in Christ that he bore it for us as he hung on the tree. Mm-hmm. We know that we have peace with God, Romans one and And we'll never be condemned to eternal separation from him. We believe that. We know that. But if we see this statement, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we see this statement in relation to our sanctification, as well as our justification, as we should, we should then understand that even when we sin as believers, God does not condemn us. Yeah, amen, hallelujah, I agree. We need to know that God does not condemn Christians who sin. God sees us as children, not as criminals. The guilt that the Spirit causes us to feel when we do sin is intended to lead to something. Not condemnation, but to repentance. To repentance. Why? Why? Because we've been pardoned. <laughs> we've been pardoned. We've been set free in Christ. You know, as a father of four children, when they were young and growing up, um, I tried to make sure that my, when my children messed up, when they disobeyed, when they sinned against me or against God, that I communicated to them, I did this faithfully, I love you. I will always love you. And then I communicated to them as well, there's a consequence to the choice that you've made. So I did not condemn them. I did call out their sin. Isn't that like what the Father does for us as his children as well? He does not condemn us as his children, when we sin, but he does reveal through the Holy Spirit and through our consciences how our behavior, our choices, our attitudes, our words dishonor him. Dishonor him. And he does so not to make us feel condemned, but to drive us to repentance. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Again, in encouraging words in the triumph of grace, H.A. Ironside also wrote these words. O doubting one, look away, then altogether from self and state. Look away from frames and feelings to Christ risen, now forever beyond the cross where your sins once put him. And see yourself in him, exalted at at, at God's right hand, He would not be there if the same question was not settled to the divine satisfaction. The fact that he is there and that you are seen by God in him is the fullest possible testimony to your freedom from all condemnation. Wow, this is so powerful, especially when you put it up against Romans 7 and the feeling of wretchedness and despair and failure. In verse 2, Paul proceeds to to more fully explain the reason why believers are not condemned for their for their sin. It is because they are pardoned or set free, is how he writes it, from the law of sin and death. Again, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, don't miss the little word that starts that statement. F-O-R. For. Because it, it is revealing that there is a connection. He's, he said, let me explain a little bit further what I mean by the fact that you're not condemned, you are pardoned. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life is that you're free from the law of sin and death. So he's already revealed there's no pronouncement or execution of judgment on those who are in Christ Jesus. And now he explains why that is so. So one question that may come up, is this, what is meant by the law of the spirit of life? Or what is meant by the law of sin and death? In these opening words in chapter 8, he establishes something. And that, that, that is that there are two opposing or contrasting laws or principles that have an impact on how God sees us. As we stand before him, even right now, how he sees us. And it becomes very important to understand here that there are a couple of meanings that the word law, the law of the spirit of light, or the law of sin and death, what that word means. A Law can either be a legal requirement, like the Ten Commandments, or we can say we have a law against murder, right? Or it can be like a scientific principle, like the law of gravity. I mean, it could be that. So Paul, sometimes... When he's writing about the law, he's referring to the divine requirement. Sometimes he's referring to a spiritual principle. And in verse 2, I think he's speaking of two opposing or contrasting principles that impact whether God sees us as condemned or as pardoned. As condemned or pardoned. And one of those principles is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And the other is the law or the principle of sin and death. So the contrast between these principles is this. The controlling influence of the Holy Spirit is one that leads to life and holiness and victory. While the controlling influence of sin, this principle, the controlling influence of sin leads to more sin and to death. Certainly spiritual death, but also physical death in the end. So what this is telling us is that through, though the, 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 though the law of sin and death keeps a person from living the kind of life that they know they should, right? That's Romans 7. I know that the law is good. I know I should be doing that. I can't do it. I don't have the ability to do it. I keep doing the opposite of what it tells me to do. So while the law of sin and death keeps a person from living the kind of life required to have a right relationship with God. And by the way, no one can do that because no one can keep the law perfectly. In contrast, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from that law of sin and death, which holds us back and holds us down from living in a way that pleases God. You kind of following this? I hope you are. Let me illustrate it if I could. And... I'm not a pilot I don't know all the you know all things related to aerodynamics so Jed you can correct me later if I'm wrong on what I'm going to say but consider the the example of the law of gravity which acts to keep a plane on the ground until it reaches a certain speed and and then the law of aerodynamics takes over and frees the plane allowing it to rise up and escape the gravitational force that wants to hold it down. Is that somewhat close? All right, all right. So in the the same way, in the same way, the law of sin and death holds people down, like gravitational force. Holds them down and holds them back from being able to rise up and live the kind of life that will bring glory to God. But once the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus takes effect, when the speed is ramped up enough in the sense that we've rushed to Christ and been set free, then we can actually consistently, regularly, normally rise up and live in a way that honors God. Pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Kind of like it. So notice what Paul actually says is that the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Notice what it doesn't say. He does not say that the law has set us free from sin and death. He said, what? Isn't that the same thing? No. Pay attention again. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit the principle of the spirit of life has set us free from the principle of sin and death. I still don't get it, Spencer. What are you talking about? Well, let me ask you. Can believers sin? Yes. yes. Okay. I think we're all agreed on that. Uh, can believers die? Yes. Yes. Yeah, in fact, we all will unless the Lord returns before we do, right? So we all sin at times. We, we may have already sinned on our way here this morning got mad at the person that was driving and crazy and, you know, had angry thoughts towards them, or maybe it was the person riding in the car with you. you. You had a little, you know, little spat going on. You you looked so nice when you walked in, but it wasn't really that way. You know, we could have already sinned today. Uh, hopefully none of us will die today physically, you know, in this meeting. If if anyone does, let it be me, Lord, and then you can just have a memorial service right now. That would be great. I, I would love that. Kind of my my uh, one of my dreams. It was like, preach a sermon, pass away, set me in a chair, have a memorial service. Yeah. That would just be awesome. <laughs> oh, my friends are here, so why not? So, if the Lord does not return, we're all going to die, but the point that Paul is making here is that Sin and death, the law of sin and death, cannot be held over us as a fixed law any longer. Jesus has broken the hold of sin's dominion and eventually even the effect of sin, which is death. Now, we die physically, but we will not die spiritually. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God Is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We saw that in Romans 6. So Jesus has rendered the law of sin and death as inoperative in its ultimate sense, right? Uh, Someday, we're not going to sin anymore either. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm not going to die. I'm going to have a body, and you will too if you're a believer, that is built for the immortal, built for the eternal. So no longer are we condemned for our sins, past, present, or future. And our bodies may be separated from our spirits through physical death, but we will receive a glorified body that will never die. And why? Because we've been pardoned. We've been set free. So no condemnation, and uh, and we've been pardoned. Number three. Number three, we're just going to take up next week. So this is a fixed law around here. Spencer may tend to go over past 12 o'clock. I'm breaking that law today, that principle. I'm going to let you out a little bit early to rejoice in what is true for us who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, now or ever. Christ bore it for us. We have been pardoned, set free, if we put our trust in Christ. And that pardon is available to... The call goes out to all, doesn't it? Not all will believe, but let's make sure that if we have been pardoned and we're celebrating that, that we are faithful to be sharing the availability of a pardon from sin through Jesus Christ with others. This is truly truth to be rejoiced in and truly truth that if we will let it seep in and get really implanted in us, we're going to live a different kind of life than what we've been living if we've been living in despair and frustration and failure and feeling wretched and guilty and shamed all the time. It's like this truth sets you free. Live in freedom. Live in freedom. Isn't that the line from Braveheart? Freedom! Live in freedom. To the glory of God. That was pretty loud, wasn't it? It was even loud to me. Okay, Lord, we are thankful for these glorious truths here in Romans 8. Thank you that we've got to this point and now it's like, oh, it's like looking at the most beautiful mountain, largest mountain, rising up, dwarfing all the other ones, and, and thank you that we can climb it and rejoice in it. And none of us will fall to our death as we climb it. In fact, we'll gain strength as we go up, and we'll have uh, feet like hind uh, deer's feet on difficult places will be secure because we're secure in Christ so thank you thank you dear father for giving your son thank you dear son for giving yourself and thank you Holy Spirit for revealing this truth to us that sets us free and Lord if there is someone here today that doesn't have this freedom cannot rejoice in because they maybe have been trusting in their own self-righteousness, or maybe they just haven't really given much thought to God and the afterlife or whatever. I pray that you would use what we've considered today to speak to them and open their hearts to the gospel. And Lord, thank you for the food that we're going to share on the other side, the meal that has been provided by others in the body. You're so good to us. You provide us all that we need. And we give you praise in our Savior's name. Amen. So if you are a guest here today, please join us for lunch on the other side. It's not just for members of the church.